Welcome to the RSP cast, Scout Talk with Russ Landy. Russ, week two's in the books. Thanks for joining us. This should be a fun show once again. Yeah, week two in the books, and already my Chargers found a way to be the Chargers and give a game away that they probably should have won. So after not watching them for two years and finally starting to watch them again, now at least they did it in week two. I can stop watching them again because I know it's the same old Chargers, and I don't have to worry about watching them again this season. <laughs> crazy, crazy, crazy. That's so funny. Well, you know, could be worse. Could be a Browns fan or in the closet as a Ravens fan. You know, yeah, the but, Ravens thing is very strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those two blown coverages, man, big difference in that game. But, you know, some fascinating stuff in the NFL. One of the things that just topped the list for me is just watching Brian Dable during his first year with the Giants. Because he said in August, he, he laid the foundation. He said, listen, we're going to have a continual competition with receivers it's going to be week to week with these guys. Well, you know, if you're the media, you listen to that and you go, well, yeah, they say that it's coach speak. You know, it doesn't mean anything. They're just trying to get the best out of some of these young talents and they're trying to push some of the established guys. But here we are, you know, Richie James leading the, leading the team, David Sills, who the last time I heard West that Virginia. name, he was catching, yeah, he's catching streaks from Will Greer, you know, and, and just hanging on to a roster spot. But they're starting over Kadarius Tony and Kenny Galladay. And while, you know, while to begin the year, um, I, I remember Big Blue Review coming to me and said, can we re review the depth chart? And I said, I said, the guy who might surprise on that team is Richie James. And I've always been a Richie James fan. But I really didn't expect that he would be this, <laughs> exactly, in this right? situation, right? So, you know, what's going on here? Is there is this a leadership statement where Dable's just saying, "Listen, I, I, I'm not. I, I see what's going on here with these two players, or with some of the players in on the locker room, and I want to make a statement that says, "Listen, I'm not attached to any of you guys. I, and if I let you guys do this." then I'm in a situation where um, anything that I ask anybody to do or demand anybody to do is up for question. So I'm going to enforce this now. And if, you know, you, you stay a headache, I'm going to let you be someone else's headache and I'm not attached to you. But well, is, I, yeah. I, I think, it, it, first, I love the idea behind it because I think what he's basically saying is, hey, I, I, I just got here. And even if he had been there for a draft or two, I think what he's trying to say is, hey, doesn't matter where you were drafted, doesn't matter how much money you're earning, everybody has to earn their job on a weekly basis. And I think he's saying not only do you have to earn it as a talent, but you have to earn it by doing the things that we as an organization, myself and the GM, Joe Shane, have decided are the fundamental building blocks in terms of working, being a good teammate, being a good leader, whatever it may be, you need to carry out all of those things and do well in practice in order to be the starter. So I think he's trying to sort of set the tone saying, hey, this is how we're going to do things here. Now, I believe in that because I think without that fundamental base of every player understanding this is how we're doing things, you have zero chance of success. I think the only risk in this, and I don't think he's anywhere near that now, I think if by midseason, if Galladay and Tony have bought in and they're doing every single thing right in practice, in the weight room, trainers, meetings, and they're model citizens, and they're killing it in practice, and they're still 
backing up. The risk you run there is the teammates, football players, are very smart. They understand more than anybody else on the outside. They know who's the best player. So if they see that a guy is buying in and doing all the, the necessary things that the coach is asking for off the field, and then he's killing it in practice, but he's still not playing, that's where you run a risk. But for now, I think what he's done is brilliant because I think he's basically saying, hey, money doesn't dictate where you, where you play. Being drafted doesn't dictate what dictates it is. Are you doing everything during the week? Are you a great player and teammate every single day? And how do you perform on the field? And I think the other part of this, and you know this from all the stuff you do with RSP, and we've talked about it a bunch, a coach will always take, I shouldn't say always, most coaches will always take a super consistent lesser talent over a wildly inconsistent elite rare talent. Because when you coach, the most important part of coaching or the way you succeed is to know what you're getting every single snap because then you can scheme correctly. When you don't know what you're getting every snap because the player is inconsistent, it makes it harder to coach. So even if Sills and James can't do the things that Tony and Galladay can at their best, they do the same thing every snap. And that often makes it easier for the coaches to game plan every week. So I love what he's doing. I understand it. And I think there's a lot of benefit to it, especially in the first year of a new regime. The only risk you run is that eight, 10 weeks out is if those guys have bought in and they believe in it and they're doing everything and they're destroying practice and you don't put them on the field because you you want to keep the guys who have been solid all year, there's a risk in alienating and getting some of the teammates to say, hey, wait, you said best player plays. These guys are no longer problems away from the field. They need to be in the lineup. Yeah, and I think it's a the two players in question, Tony and Galladay, are, are, are a great example for making this point because it's clear that he's – I think he's making this point to – to Tony especially because Tony I mean you watch Tony and he's he's the second best offensive talent on the team of the skill players I mean second to the Barkley it's not yep. even close um but then you look at Galladay and Galladay as you said he's the high-priced free agent addition I always thought you watch his film and like a, a spectacular physical talent who certainly has improved in terms of understanding how to get open against zones. You know, you match him up in the slot against man-to-man and he can win there. But he's a matchup type of player, which we're going to get into with this next conversation to me, which is not a matchup player, a scheme player, where it's kind of like you scheme the offense to get him in the open space or give him a matchup that's just any receiver should win. Like you put him against the safety, most safeties or a linebacker. And, in you know, you can get those matchups if you have a Marvin Jones on one side and a Golden Tate on the other. And Matthew Stafford can make the decisions there at the level that he did as a veteran. That works. But then you put him as your primary outside receiver and it doesn't work so well. And then you see moments where, you know, even commentators will see him during games and say, wow, that the effort wasn't fully there. It's like he's given up on the field, you know, and saw moments of that during the, the Gettleman era. And now you, you, you come in, and I think what he's saying is, listen, like you said, he's the high-priced guy. Um, and 
and Tony, you know, listen, this is this could be you. You could have another big contract, you know, but if you're going to behave like this, you're not going to play and you're not going to be here for long. And I think that's the note is like we I think this is really geared towards getting Tony to go don't be like him. Don't be like Galladay. And Galladay cleaned out his locker um after the week 2 game and he was surprised apparently before the game started that he would not be playing. Um so, you know, it's a it's interesting how this is going to develop in Washington. Um but it is but, you know, for, for them, I mean, I think for him, it's like, this is my effort to try and save Tony to be the player we want him to be. And if he isn't, let him be somebody else's headache. And that's also the job. I mean, his new coach, he sees the talent. He says, hey, if we can figure him out, if we can unlock that key, which a lot of young guys coming up the league don't, they don't understand what it takes to be a pro. Hey, can this guy unlock it? And if he can, then you're talking about a player who will become a star and will be a star for a team that needs him. Yeah. So I understand what they're doing. And I think, hey, why not address it now? Because nobody's getting fired this year in terms of the coach or GM there. So if they lose some games they shouldn't, which obviously right now they're doing great with two wins. But if they end up losing three or four games that they shouldn't, they're not getting blown out. And they're sort of setting the foundation for, hey, this is how we do things. We're not deviating. And this is how this organization is going to be run. Yeah. And if you... There's two ways you lose a team, I think, in the two main ways. And one of them is either you're you're too too harsh and, and like you said, what you run the risk of doing where, you, you know, you end up being, you know, too harsh and not and not really fair with what you do or you're not or you're not enforcing the boundary and you're letting players basically, you know, letting the players who don't behave in the manner that they should set the the tenor of how things are done in the organization i mean you look at a guy like i remember hearing stories about rookie frank gore in san francisco when san francisco was in that era where they weren't winning and he, hearing a story about how he yelled at the veterans in the locker room after a game like had a tear-filled tirade as a rookie because he was watching veterans who were literally laughing and joking after a loss and talking about what they were going to be doing once they left the locker room. And it wasn't working. It wasn't trying to figure out how to get better. It was more about partying and what, and they seemed to be looking forward more to that than trying to get better. And he got angry and literally like, like just yelled at the team. In, well, in it's tears, an, you know? part of the reason you want that is, I mean, people talk all the time about teaching a team to win and getting them to learn how to win. But the bigger risk is when a team starts to accept losing and, and, and they don't go into a game knowing they're going to win. They go into a game not really caring, just wanting to get it over with. When you start to see that in your locker room, it's over. And that's why what Dable is doing. I respect it. He's trying to change the culture in that building to say everything we do every single minute of every single day is to be the best we can be so that come game day, we can be the best we can. And I respect it. I, I, I think he's doing the right thing. And hopefully it turns out well, because as we've said before on this, I think when the Bears, the Giants are winning, the league is better for it. So hopefully the Giants can get this going in the right direction and keep it going. At 2-0, you got to be excited. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, they seem to be off to a good start. So, 
So let's talk a little bit more about, you know, these, you know, scheme players like Galladay and then matchup players who, you know, Tony could be, which is, you know, someone that you, you can scheme plays too and get him in open space and he's going to do, you know, very well, just like a, a scheme player. But he also has that element like Stefan Diggs, where it's fourth down or third and 11 and you need to match, you know, he's going to get matched up against Jalen Ramsey and it doesn't matter. You're still going to him. You know that, you know, what, what he does well, he can win those one-on-one plays. He can make the, if you're a quarterback, if, if the plays are busted or foiled based on what the defense does, that they can still make adjustments and, and do things to outwit the defense, you know, whether it's calling a different play or whatever. So, you know, with that in mind, with that difference between the two, just, you know, how can both, you know, how can both help, but, you know, well, both can help, but how long does it take, you know, for, say, a guy like Curtis Samuel, who I think can do some matchup things, but is obviously maybe the king of schemed wide receivers right now. And and even the commander said, listen, Scott Turner said, listen, we're going to, He's going to be the focal point of how we scheme our offense. And you watched him, and there were nine nine plays, pass plays, targets that he had against the Lions. And five of them were like schemed chess piece plays where the whole, the basically the resources of the offense were devoted to getting him open rather than him like one-on-one getting open. And then he even had a reverse in, as the 10th play. Uh, so 60% of his plays were were schemed, you know, in terms of touches or opportunities. How long does that last in a season, you know, when a guy is operating on that heavy of a diet of scheme plays? When does it get to a point where teams say, opponents are like, we found this out, we have a solution for it, and we're going to minimize the impact of these types of plays? Well, I I think it's sort of in, there's two buckets. There's the bucket of most, um, NFL offenses that would try to scheme a player open, those don't last very long, three, four games, because they're not really great at manufacturing the same schemed up matchup that they're creating through different varying looks. They scheme a lot of the same things out of one or two looks. The teams that are really successful, and you can look at the Patriots all those years with McDaniels, um, a lot of Mark, Mike Martz's stuff when he was the head coach. Um, the teams that can scheme a player to get open, running literally the same route, option route or whatever, but from eight, nine, ten different sets and versus a variety of different defensive sets where you can't predict it, where you can't, especially today in in Today's NFL, it's not like it was 20 years ago when you'd have a coach who'd have to chart out every play and you'd be lucky if you got three games of data. Nowadays, literally, Monday morning, they have a printout of, hey, here's the last 10 games of data. Here's a breakdown of every time they used each player and here's what happened every time they did third and this. So if you're not creative in running different plays out of the same set and doing it out of a ton of different sets so that nothing's predictable, they'll figure that out really quick. So the really good coaches, can you scheme players and scheme them open year after year after year? Whereas the coaches, and, I, and I'm and i not trying to denigrate coaches, it's just like any profession, 
if you take 32 teams, the odds are four or five or maybe seven are really good and the bulk are average. Yeah. And that's those four or five, they can manipulate over and over and over to get guys open and the rest, it gets figured out and then you end up in trouble. So can a quarterback be a schemed player and have perennial success? You know, I think of two players who I, if I, you know, there's, I, I got this, I had this really great article that some Mark Schofield wrote for me called Baker or Chef. And it was baked on based on the analogy of what I what I had earlier written about uh, management styles, you know, management styles of being task oriented or creative. And, you know, and the guy that that I talked about as being task oriented was Marcus Mariota. Like you, 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 you set an offense and you have him be the executor of those tasks and he can, if you have enough talent around him, it works. Um, or it can work for a period of time. But you can almost see, it, the, the more you study quarterbacks, you can almost see it's, it, he can be a little robotic. It's like, this was what they told me to do. And it's click, 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 you know, in, in, in incremental steps of, of how it's going. Whereas you could look at a player, you look at a different player like a Brett Favre, he would be on the exact opposite end of where it's like, I don't even know what this is, but we're going to figure out how to, you know, deal with it. I'm going to figure a workaround for this that's going to make this all work. And he could execute stuff, but at the same time, when things go awry, it's fine. So I see in the NFL today, Marcus Mariota and Baker Mayfield is more task-oriented. Can they have perennial success in today's NFL as task-oriented thinkers or managers of a, of a game? Well, first, I think they can if they're matched with a coach who can really take advantage of their skill set and make what they have to do less predictable, even if what they're doing is actually predictable because they do it in different sets. Um, but there are players, and I'm not trying to denigrate them, but if a quote-unquote scheme quarterback, or and, and I look at it as both scheme, it can be mental or physical. Yeah. Because I look at when you look at guys like, and I'm not trying to knock them because they're two or three of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, but Joe Montana, Kurt Warner, they were never going to be playing in the old Raiders throw the ball 50 yards down the field because although they both had good arms, neither had elite rare arms. Yeah. So there were certain scheme things that they fit into. But the thing that allowed them to be so successful is sort of twofold. Firstly, mentally, they were on a different level. Then, and I think that's where you see the difference between maybe them and guys like Mariota and, and Mayfield is that ability to see things before it happens, anticipate what's going to happen, and then the added, the physical elite traits of release quickness, accuracy, and anticipatory throwing. I think if you have those traits, you can be a scheme quarterback, even if I don't, I don't really want to say their scheme, but they're not elite, rare John Elway type physical, just machines. You can get away with it, but in general, you have to be elite above the shoulders yeah. to have any chance. Whether you're in a scheme or you're just going to sort of roll the ball out there and say play. Yeah, I think that matches the idea of like, it, it, you know, like there's to me there's like two axes, and there's the there's the scheme and matchup player. And then there's what we call the baker and chef because it's like the baker's the, I'm the follow the directions guy and everything has to be precise. 
And that's kind of like, to me, the ultimate baker in the league is Tom Brady. Like Tom Brady is a quintessential baker, but he's so advanced with it and he's so prepared and he knows everything that's going on in the room. And he even gets to design the kitchen to an extent that he looks like a chef when he may actually be the ultimate baker. I think Steve Young was kind of a chef. I'm in a baker as well. He wanted to be a chef. And he played like a chef, and then Bill Walsh was like, "No, we're gonna we're gonna turn you into a baker because you're 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 too unpredictable as a chef." Whereas with a chef like a Brett Favre, or John Elway was, or a Russell Wilson is the kind of where you or Ben Roethlisberger, where it's kind of like, yeah, you can go, things can go crazy, and you can figure out a way to make it work. Where the the coach is like, "No, no, 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 yes, yes, yes," at the end of the play. And well, I think, and if you look, you yeah. mentioned Brady. You mentioned Steve Young. I mentioned Montana, Warner. System. One of the things there is that mental yeah. is so far above yeah. most other quarterbacks. And I will say part of also the other thing that's got to be part of that is the ability to consistently put the ball where it's got to be every single time. If you have mental rareness and your accuracy is just rare, it's hard to miss. And that's what, to me, allows guys like Brady and that sort of thing. Now, Brady might be a little bit, in terms of arm, I think he's a little stronger than some of those other guys we yeah. talked about. But the mental side is what really has allowed Brady and that, that sort of ability to see things before they happen. That's what's so rare. Whereas when you watch Mariota, it just never seems natural. Yeah. It's, it, whereas Mayfield, to me, it seems like it's almost rushed. Everything he's doing... He feels like he's got to press the gas to the floor. Yeah. If you could just temper him a little bit, I think he'd be a star. But again, that's part of the mental. Yeah. The being able to take a deep breath in the pocket. Yeah, it's it's fascinating how fine a line there is with so many so many players at that position. So you brought up gamesmanship last time we talked between players, and I thought that was so fascinating. Um, you know, talk about gamesmanship between, say, like veterans, especially veterans on the on the minimum who are aging versus young up and coming players. And we get and I gave the example of maybe Tyson Williams being a possible victim of gamesmanship in Baltimore last year. So what about gamesmanship between, say, coaches and the front office? Is, is that something that also exists? Because I'd have to. Thing, I'm thinking of examples that I could think of that that probably would come to mind. Is uh, is that fair? Is that something that probably also happens in the league? Oh, there's no doubt it happens. I think it happens mostly in organizations that are losing because everybody, and I get this, this is inherent. I mean, you, me, everybody, yeah. we want to stay employed. Yeah. So when things start going sideways, and there are times I've been there where in training camp you knew going out to practice every day, uh-oh, we're not going to be particularly good. And you knew because you would hear the stories that, hey, when the coaches talked, when the owner would stop by the coaches, they would talk about, hey, we're going to try to do what we can, but this is a bad team. There's not a lot of talent. And at the same time, when the owner would come in the scouting room, you hear the, the executives on the scouting side, whether it's the GM or the personnel people talk about, you know, we're, we're loading them up, but we got to get these coaches to really do better. And, and it even gets down to the point where there are sometimes coordinators who will tell the head coach, hey, we're doing our best to get this scheme working, but you know, our, our linebacker coach, he's just not teaching it right. No matter what I do. And so, yeah, there is definitely gamesmanship. I think where you find it most, like I said, it's in losing organizations and it's not all losing organizations. It also is in organizations where 
the coaching and scouting are not meshed in terms of on the same page and where you may not have a leader because there are head coaches and trust me, I'm not trying to say I'm one of them in terms of being this type of person, but there are head coaches, there are coordinators and their GMs and directors that may be portrayed or sell themselves as leaders, but really are not natural leaders and therefore have a hard time getting those in the building with them to buy in and go in the same direction. And it's not to knock them, it's just a personality. Certain people have that innate ability to lead other people, others don't. And you need to have a leader in your building. Yeah, and you really you, want to have one on your coaching and one on your scouting side, and they have to work together all yeah, the time. Yeah, and you and you know when you when you learn to interview, you, you know you're going to consult the same resources as everybody else, which means that you you know people want you to portray yourself as a as a leader, and and you and you so you you learn how to talk the talk, even if you're not trying to be phony. You learn how to talk that talk. And you may not know how to walk it, and that's yep. the, that's the big deal. And it's fascinating because, you know, I know of people who've interviewed with um, some of the, you know, certain companies, larger companies, and there are some companies now that are doing tracks where they say, "Listen, we have a leadership track, and we have an individual contributor track, and they both get. You can be a high-end individual contributor." and not have many people under you and still get paid as much as say uh and a low-end leadership track person but and we're good with that if we know you can be a high-end contributor we're gonna pay you but if you but we'd rather give you the chance to move between one track and the other and know where you stand with the company and we and we know where you want to be and it's fascinating that they do that because that just tells you that they've also seen that in the interview style oh well there's no doubt and i mean i think the scariest thing i've ever heard is from both executives in scouting and um players when a new gm or new head coach came in and they literally within two weeks they said yeah this is not going to work they're mm -hmm. like this guy can't lead the either the front office or the team and you think how do you know so quickly Yet yeah. this guy was able to get through the interview process. Yeah. And and imagine how frustrating that's got to be if you're a young player in your second year, new head coach, and within a few weeks of being there in OTAs, you're like, this guy's a disaster. Yeah. Now, at the same time, there probably are some coaches who have seemed like a disaster personality-wise, but turned out to be great coaches. Yeah. So you don't want to write them all off, but there is a little bit of something that says, what in the world? It's like, that to me is one of the big mysteries in sort of how do you identify the right coach? To me, that's the hardest part of the business because you can get by with an okay GM, yeah. but it's hard to get by with just an adequate coach. Yeah, You really need a coach who can lead men. And, and it doesn't have to be a screamer yeller, but it's gotta be someone who gets the respect like a coach for a meal and could lead. Um, but you have to have that guy in the coaching staff. It's very hard to win without that guy. Yeah, and it's fascinating to watch who, you know, you can see the template that goes on around the league when a lot of it is he was a great offensive or defensive mind who, you know, on a winning team that was trendy and and the and everybody on the on the talk show circuit was talking about him. That's what you know, from yeah. that perspective. And then I always find it funny because 
you know, as an outsider, I, I kind of, it's always the great irony that when that coach gets fired, it's because they can't generate the thing that they were known for. Um, you know, now that they're out from under the, the wing of the, of who was really getting it done or because everything else was a disaster and they couldn't lead or, you know, and sometimes it's just, they were good, but the situation was bad and there were factors, too many factors outside their control that it just led to bad and they go somewhere else and prove that, yeah, they actually could. So yep. you, you kind of get all three, but I, I look at a guy like John Harbaugh and Mike Tomlin and neither of them were especially known offensive or defensive minds. Harbaugh was a special teams guy. Tomlin is a, from what all respect seems to be a guy that is highly respected, probably a good delegator, someone who also can connect between coaches and players and get things done. And, and Harbaugh seems to also have that delegating mindset, knowing the balance of what to take into his hands and what to put into people's hands that he can trust and knowing who to trust. Yeah. It's not that easy. I mean, really, those are two great examples of, I think people that, may not have come from the traditional background of being a coordinator for many years on a team that won over and over and over, but they just have that sort of, not only the ability to lead, but the ability also to work well within an organization. They don't have the ego where everything has to be their, their sort of stamp on it, that they're more concerned about, hey, if we win, everybody wins, as opposed to we have to win my way. And I think that's something when you see both those guys, to me, are great examples of a person that understands the bigger picture and has the ability to relate, but also can lead. And that's what I think makes Tomlin and Harbaugh so unique. But it's it's something that's so hard to find. Yeah, it really is. And it's because it's it's hard to know without seeing it day to day. I mean, you, there's no test. There's no, no real test for seeing how that is. And, and if you do... You can get hints of it. You can kind of see, but the best way to do it is the best way to know is seeing them work within your organization and and hiring up with them. But those guys often get taken to some taken somewhere else before you that you get that opportunity to to elevate them from the place that they were. So that well, especially because a lot of time the place they are is winning. Yeah. So you're not going to get rid of that head coach. So how do you as an organization find out they're good? Because there may be an offense coordinator, defensive coordinator, special teams coordinator, a quarterback coach. Which of them is really the guy who's going to be a good head coach? And which one is really just a good deputy and a great coordinator? And without being in the building, it's hard to know. Because as soon as you bring them in for an interview, like you said, they all know the playbook. They all know exactly what they have to do to interview well. So you're not going to find out. Whereas someone... In that organization, if you had a spy in the building, you could say, hey, of these three coaches, can any be a head coach? He may say no, or he may say, yeah, this guy over here is actually the best coach we have in terms of a potential head coach. And that's why it's so hard. That's why so many mistakes get made. Yeah, yeah, it's a difficult process. You know, let's let's finish off this with a couple of questions and really kind of three, but two of them were things that we plan on talking about. One of them is kind of a variation on that. I've never asked you on air because you were known for really kind of being ahead of the curve on Tom Brady. I want to know, I want to know what it is about Tom Brady that you saw at Michigan that, that you had, you know, this guy's 
This guy is better than where he's being graded. Well, firstly, I don't want to give make it sound like I had this guy as a first round pick. I mean, I, I had him as a third round pick, and I, and I thought he could be a good, yeah. solid starter. Yeah. Um, I had concerns about his arm strength. Um, this was in the early stages of, and you, we talked about like favorite projects that I've dealt with. Yeah. Uh, one of the projects that I started with when I was at the Rams was Coach Vermeil asked me to work with uh, Mike White, a longtime college coach, NFL head coach, to develop a way to evaluate quarterbacks. Um, and one of the things we sort of, we just started going through what are the key traits. And the two areas that, I mean, we came up with like eight or nine traits, but the two areas that Tom Brady was so exceptional at at Michigan were he never made mistakes. He almost never threw a ball that the defender had an opportunity to get their hands on. He was, and you've you've done RSP for forever, and you you have a grasp of the fact that it may sound dumb, but a quarterback's willingness to throw the ball into the stance yes. is not something you can just teach overnight no. and sometimes can never be taught. Certain guys have a feel for it's better to throw it away and punt than risk putting it in a risky position. Tom at Michigan was like that. He rarely took gambles. He would only take a calculated gamble when the odds were so much in his favor. Um, and the other thing was accuracy. Um, it's not just the accuracy on, hey, I'm making the quick wide receiver screen or the, the five or six yard slant. But when it came to where he had a five or a seven step drop and had a clean pocket, and he was throwing a 22 yard dig or, or a 12 yard out to the far side. Could he put it on a rope? And I'm not saying you have to have a cannon. I don't mean that at all. But can, do you have enough of an arm and enough anticipatory skill to throw it so that as they come out of their break, they take a step and it's right in their hands? That was one of the things I saw from Brady that was impressive. Um, like I said, I don't want to misconstrue and make it sound like I thought he was going to be a Hall of Famer because he definitely did not receive a first-round grade. He was sure. my third quarterback that year. Yeah. He was, And to give you an example, Mark Bolger was my first. And the second, who I had ahead of Brady, was a 5'10 quarterback named Joe Hamilton. I so, remember Joe, yeah. yeah so now maybe today Joe would have done okay because yeah. teams would have looked at a 5'10 quarterback. Yeah. But back then he had no chance. And I was raw and just didn't want to admit that. So I like Brady, no doubt. I gave him a, what I, for me, is a, an F61. Three, three rounds better than where he went, that's for sure. True, very you true. Know, you know. But I will say the one thing that I think is important, not just so for not, not so much for Brady, but I've also... My highest-rated quarterback ever was Ryan Nassib. There you go. So, and yeah. he missed. So, no matter how good you think you may well do on one guy, and that's why I always respected Scott Pioli at the Patriots. On his desk, he kept a picture of the tight end they took in the fifth round. Wow. That was gone within a year. There you go. And people would ask him why he kept that, and he said he kept it because if we were that smart, we would have taken him earlier. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I, it, it, yes, I was fortunate to be correct on him, but I did not project as a as a Hall of Fame career. I just thought he'd be a good, solid start. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I know for me, I think one of the the it's always it's the tough to me that I think the most rewarding are the tough scouting projects on a player that where you're against the consensus. And the consensus is this guy's great. He's gonna be great. You know, those are the tough ones because you you consistently are asking yourself, what am I not seeing that everyone else is seeing? 
what you know because then you because you get towards the end and you have your grade you start to realize that you know you're pretty firm with where you're at you've watched a lot of games you've got you've gone through everything that's on in your criteria you know and then you start to look around a little bit and as you peek out from where you are you start to see well all right well you you already kind of know even if you don't peek out like he won the Heisman trophy or you know he's you know he's a he's a highly productive player you, you know you hear commentators talk about him glowingly you know those even and then you start to look around and you see your peers talking about him to me a guy like Darren McFadden was a great example of a player that I just I didn't get and now I but it it taught me a lot because one of the reasons I didn't get him was he for me running backs need to have a certain level of contact balance and to and the way I would grade contact I still grade contact balance is there's contact balance where someone's coming from a direct angle to hit you and it's and you grade it by tiers of what position they are hitting you you know are you getting hit by a, a tackle are you or a lineman and linebacker or a DB and to me it after watching at that point probably at least a few hundred running backs up to that point um when I got to a guy like McFadden I had started to see and in my database that guys who who started in the NFL could at least run downhill and run over a flat-footed you know defensive back after like a good 8-10 yard runway to run into them with good pad level everything even if you never good pad level you probably ran over the guy or at least didn't fall backwards and McFadden is as big as he looked even though he wasn't a particularly big guy it, you know with the speed he had even with the momentum he generated he would fall backwards hitting a flat-footed defensive back and I remember thinking that's you know that's that's rare and and even to this day what I've learned is that after watching over a thousand players there were two guys I think that stood out as guys who actually had at least one starter caliber season in the league with that kind of missing trait and it was McFadden and it was um Marlon Mack and those oh, were the two go. those yep. were the two guys and and McFadden what I learned was that that was important that he was exceptional in that case but only as a gap runner like he would be good in today's NFL now that they've spread the field they're playing nickel and every offense this year is now running their share of gap plays because they can, you know, because, you know, as coaches joke, that's God's play. Is well, I wonder how he would be in the 49ers. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Because I mean, his explosion and yeah. just pure speed, that to me seems like tailor fit for what that kid does. Yeah, exactly. Whereas in contrast, the, the, the second good season he had was in Dallas because in, in, in Oakland, he wasn't running a gap scheme where he had his biggest year. Then in Dallas, he ran, had him run zone like he did in Oakland and didn't do as well. And he did great, but Dallas's line was on, was all world at that time during the height of Tyron Smith and everybody else. And there were plays you could see literally him stop and look like he needed to ask for directions yeah. with where to go because there's such different styles. 
But like a guy like that was always very, I learned so much because that was really about how guys approach different run schemes and what they, what they know and what they don't, as well as a trait based performance skill in terms of like, do they have contact balance or do they not? And so things like that were, you know, to me are some of my favorite projects is when you're, when you really have to, they're not fun at the time, but they're, but they're so worthwhile later. Well, to me, one of the ones that I've had a hard, I shouldn't say a hard time is I've over the years gone from being a guy who I want my tackles to be rare athletes and I'll figure out the aggressiveness and all that. Whereas now I'm the opposite. I'll take an average to above average athlete as long as they're nasty and aggressive and all that. And I'm always trying to go look and say, okay, where are the tackles in the league that are super athletic, that are not ultra competitive, that have made it? Because there are some, there always are. There's always going to be exceptions. And I'm always trying to find them to say, okay, let me go watch their film and see what it is that allows them to be successful when so many other finesse tackles have not made it even if they're superior athletically and even strength-wise to some of these other guys. So that, to me, has always been one of the things I always try to track, the finesse tackles that make it. And there aren't many. It's really a, a rare few. But I do that sort of like your thing with the running back. I'm always trying to figure out what is it that allows the rare one or two to make it. Yeah, no, that's a great thought. And, and that kind of bleeds into our final question, which is, you know, what are some things that um, – you know, that attract scouts, qualities about players that really attract scouts or repel scouts that are that are like behavioral based and not just like bad off field behavior, but just things that like through interviews or through talking to other coaches, talking to coaches or recruiters at practices when they make their visits, um, you know, or when the, the players have visits. What are things that can kind of tip them over the edge to err one way or the other for or against a player? Well, I think the biggest misperception is when people, and I'm not trying to knock you or anybody else, but people in the media say character is an issue. Well, in the NFL, there's two different characters. There's off-field character and there's football character. Yeah. Off-field, a lot of that's going to be determined by the way higher-ups. If this guy's gotten into or arrested for beating somebody up or three or four DUIs, that decision on his being a member of a team is going to be made by the president, the owner, whatever. Your job, and this is where it's so important, is the football character. Because there are, there are kids that are not the best kids, but in your building, they're fantastic. So when you go to a school, you're trying to find out from talking to people, from going to practice, how serious do they take it? Do they practice hard? Will they practice hurt? How important is the game to them? Um, what are they like with their teammates? Are they a good teammate? Are they good in the locker room? That's what you're trying to find out. Because if they have great football character, you go, oh, good. Whereas if you get the impression when you talk to the coaches and watch them in practice, if you see the guy when you're in practice, that you're at a college practice, and you see a receiver trying to count his reps to make sure he goes against the worst guy, that sends off red flags in your head saying, wait, this kid's not confident that he's just not going to jump in and go and take his reps. I mean, there are certain things you see or the guys that all ask out in practice because they're all tired. And you, when you ask the coach, I'm like, there's no reason he should be asking out. You just want to get a feel for 
that stuff and it all ties into it. and i think we've talked about it both today and prior is just how much do they love the game yeah. um i always try to find out when you talk to them when they grew up was their goal to get to the nfl or to play in the nfl yeah. And it's not to knock them because a lot of these kids come from unique situations where just getting there is an un, I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable accomplishment for anybody to get to the NFL. Yeah. But for some, just to that, that first contract will change 30 lives. So you get that. But you have to find out what is their love? Because as you know, and you've been around this now a long time, this is no longer playing in college, having fun on Saturdays chill practices if you're the star player and partying and enjoying 10 games, whatever. This is now a job. And you're not just competing to be the starter against the other guy that's 20 and whatever. You're not competing against a 27-year-old who's got a wife and two kids who's trying to pay a mortgage. This is real life. Yeah. So how hard do you work? How, how, how important is it to you to be successful? How much are you willing to do off the field in terms of work, in terms of dealing with pain, in terms of playing through things, how how do you handle hard coaching? Are you a guy that we can correct? That's one of the biggest issues when kids come into the NFL. They've been coddled a little bit, depending on the program and where they played in high school. You get in the NFL, a lot of teams, you're going to have to deal with hard coaching. So if you can't handle that, how are you going to survive? So the love of the game is something that is is underrated, and I think – there's, I don't, I don't, I don't want to sound like um, the be, be all end all, but I really believe like 90% of the guys that go in the first three rounds, the failure is because of intangibles. Yeah. Because I really believe if you ask Coach Belichick or, or Coach Tomlin or Les Snead or Tom Telesco, most of those guys have been around this game long enough that they, the guys they take in the first three rounds, they generally have evaluated the film and they know if they physically can play in the NFL. Okay, so if they physically can play in the NFL, what are the things holding them back? Well, a lot of time it's how much do they love it? How much are they willing to do to become successful? Because when you get to the pros, it is literally a – obviously, I don't want to take anything away from actual soldiers, but it is a war. When these guys come in on a Monday after a game, the training room is awful. The stuff these players deal with every single game, they're always hurt and banged up. The ones that don't love football will find a way to, quote, unquote, be injured. Yeah. Whereas other guys will find a way to play. And it really does matter. I think that is the single biggest turnoff is when you start going to a school, investigating a kid, have come for visits, and you just get this vibe that to him football is not that important. And I'm not saying it has to be the most important in his life. There are some really smart young men that have a lot of ambition and want to do other things when they're done with football, and that's fine. But how important it is is it to them right now to be successful? And when you can figure out that it matters to them, that's important because this is not a game for the emotional, emotionally or physically weak. It takes a lot to deal with the every week ups and downs, and that to me is the greatest challenge as a scout is to figure out what's inside a player's heart and his head. Yeah, and there's, you know, and what's interesting is the media will often – um, highlight the exceptions to the rule. And as a result, you get these things, well, how come the scouts didn't know this about this player, you know? Well, Arian Foster seemingly got the idea that he didn't, they got the idea he didn't really love football because he studied philosophy, you know? And then they'll bring it up, but they paint it in a way where 
it does come across as ridiculous. Like you look at the player on the field, now you see the end result, and you can use that hindsight analysis to say, well, this was silly. But then when you start looking at it from a scouting point of view, you go, well, you know, I'm, we're not looking for the exceptional because the exceptional might be Lawrence Taylor, who can party, who might come in the late to the buildings and meetings and and is so good that Belichick's complaining to Parcells about it and Parcells is look, look, just figure it out. I don't, yeah, exactly. you, you know, I, you know, don't, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Because the guy, because on the field, the guy will probably play with a broken leg and still play his ass off and be better than half the linebackers in the league on one leg, you know? Yeah, so. and I mean, one of the things, and I'm sure you've heard it, a lot of the coaches will tell you, if you look at the end of the season, obviously quarterbacks play a big role, but a lot of the teams that make the playoffs are the ones that are having the most players that when the season began were in their starting lineup and are still in their starting lineup. The game is a game of attrition. Yeah. And... You can have the greatest quarterback, the greatest skill players, but if all of a sudden you're down three or four new linemen by the end of the year on your offensive line, odds are your quarterback's not going to be playing particularly well. Yeah. So the love of football, and I'm, trust me, I'm not trying to kill players, but the guys who are willing to say, hey, I know if I'm in pain, and I know this is going to be a problem, but how do I tape it up? How do I find a way to continue to be in the lineup? One of the things we always hear, and it's sort of a, catchphrase that college trainers and coaches will use as a way to tell us this guy isn't tough without outwardly saying it because they don't want to get sued is they'll always tell you hey this guy wow when he is a hundred percent he is a hundred percent great player and as soon as you hear that all that oh, rings yeah. in your head is as soon as the game start and he's dinged he's gonna be missing practice he's gonna be finding a way to ask out doesn't mean he won't play in the games but if you're missing practice Unless you're a rare, special, unique player, missing practice throughout the year, you're not going to be the same player. So it's very hard to figure out, but very few players that don't love the game last a long time and are productive because the game it just it eats away at your body. It's so violent. Yeah, it's a it's fascinating. You know, I I think the last thing that comes to mind as you were talking about the this when you interview players is a player who. Kind of like with Tom Brady, like I didn't think he was going to be an immediate starter. I didn't think that he would wind up having the career that he had. I thought maybe he'd be like a junior level Drew Brees in terms of like, you know, not at Brees' level of acclaim or accomplishments, but it was Russell Wilson. And the first thing that kind of came to mind with Russell Wilson is kind of a funny story with our, our friend Cecil Lammy at the Senior Bowl because we were at the Senior Bowl on media night and I don't usually go to media night too often anymore, but it was the first the first few years we were doing it on a regular basis. And I was finishing interviewing a wide receiver for an SEC team and I look across, and this was during the time that Tim Tebow won a playoff game in Denver and Tebow mania was at its, at its zenith. And I see Cecil with Russell Wilson and they're sitting there talking and Cecil asks a question and they're both seated. And for the tiniest moment, Russell Wilson gets angry. Now, if you know anything about Russell Wilson, he's, you know, we all know that he's right now, he's getting kind of blasted in the media for being, you know, the, 
the game show host element of media that's yeah. you know, about entertainment that he's corny and that his leadership's contrived and that he's kind of a dork and that the things he tries to do feel like 1950s dad stuck in you know the, these types of things but at the time the the only thing that's that people seem to really stand out about russell wilson that was a consensus was that he was they were eating up the whole leadership skills element of his of his persona and that you know there were people giving quotes about how he you know that he could he had the leadership skills of a of an, a fortune 500 executive and that you know that he could give those talks that norman schwarzkopf is giving you know on the lecture circuit and just comparing him on that level and he was always calm and poised so when I see Cecil, I'm standing like 20 yards away and Cecil asks a question and Russell Wilson bolts up out of his chair. His arms go behind his back like he looks like they're having like a South Park bro down, you know, <laughs> and 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 like for the briefest moment, Russell Wilson is pissed like the look on his face was angry and suddenly you see him catch himself. I mean, it was like the briefest moment he catches himself and then he smiles and his and his body language softens and he says something and then they they say goodbye and Cecil had like stood up just as fast because like he didn't know he was just reacting to Russell Wilson so like we leave the interview and we're going back to the car and I go what did you say to piss off Russell Wilson he goes you caught that too he's like he did look pissed didn't he I said yeah what'd you say he goes I just asked him, I said, you know, based on what we were seeing and everything, I said, how would you feel about backing up Tim Tebow in Denver? And, and, <laughs> and then he said, and after he, I said, after he got angry or he stood up like that and he softened, he said, I have no intention of backing up anybody in the NFL. And this was a time where he was nondescript in practices. Kirk Cousins was getting more love at that time. I remember one of your guys was talking up Kurt, who's played very well in the NFL. You know, and I just remember I hadn't watched Russell Wilson yet. And I thought to myself, I gotta go watch this guy. I you know, he's I gotta put him higher on my list to watch because anybody who's like short, light, who switched teams, who is like you know, have, you know, not getting a lot of buzz at that time. And like basically said, no way in hell I'm like start, I'm playing behind Tim Tebow, you know, mm -hmm. and getting angry about it, but known for not being angry. Like there's a killer inside that kid. Like there's no gotta be like, he's like, there's like Michael Corleone. It might be all polished. It might be even like a little bit to the point where you're like, I don't believe any of that. But inside, anybody who comes back after having the worst half in his career against Aaron Rodgers Packers on the on the scale that he did, or when Cam Newton's up 27-3 or 29-3, and, and they're breathing down the neck of the Panthers at the end of that game in the playoffs, anybody who's capable of that diluted of a belief that they're going to get there somehow and do it and get on the either get on the precipice or make it happen that's the greatness inside that player well there's no doubt and one of the things and you probably sort of get this i remember talking to some people outside of football to get a feel for sort of the profession and all that of quarterback 
And a lot of them said, they said, we don't know because we've never interviewed them, but they said our guess, as they're all psychologists, they said our guess is if you found the elite quarterbacks in your league, they said most of them are probably narcissists. Because they said there has to be a feeling in them that anything that happens bad is never their fault because their confidence has to be at such a high level all the time that they never question if they can do it. And that's one of the things that's very hard to measure. And I think that's one of the things that Russell Wilson has. I think the fact that he went from NC State to Wisconsin literally a month before the season and within two weeks was named captain tells you there's something about that guy that just intrinsically, even if he's a little bit of an odd duck in terms of his personality at times, he intrinsically has that leadership quality, that Harbaugh Tomlin ability to pull people around him to where they want to do better for him. And that's a unique thing that I think the great quarterbacks have. For sure. And if you want to hear more about Russell Wilson, I'm finishing up an article today at Football Guys talking about (laughs) how, you know, it's cool to hate Russell Wilson, but but that just makes him all the more valuable for you to acquire him after the slow start, especially with the charting I did of the first two games. Um, You could probably say that if he is a narcissist, he's justified in this particular instance with what's going on. Um, right now and you can find more of that at football guys of course you can find russ and i every other week talking about um you know nfl scout football scouting you know the nuts and bolts the higher end ideas about things that go behind it um and we'll get into some players as time goes on too um we're looking forward to being able to do that with you and we appreciate that you you know that you're listening to this podcast you know you can subscribe to matt waldman's rsp cast on all the usual suspects where you can download <laughs> pods um you know i could list them all off but i probably don't even remember two or three of them what which one the names of which ones they are but we do appreciate that you listen and the feedback that you give and you guys have a great week